your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Lawrence Reed. He is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education and the editor of a new book, Excuse Me, Professor, Challenging the Myths of Progressivism. Larry, welcome to the Dead Dialogues. Hey, thank you very much, Don. I appreciate it. So I want to talk about the new book in a moment, but could you talk a little bit about fee and its history? Because I think there's a really interesting connection to Ayn Rand that most people aren't aware of. Yes, I'd be happy to. Fee was founded in 1946 by the late Leonard Reed, no relation to me. He spelled his name uh, R-E-A-D. But uh, I don't recall exactly when, but he became a friend of Ayn Rand's, I think rather early in the history of Fee. And they had quite a correspondence over many years and uh, maybe a few disagreements here and there, but uh, they were friends and allies in uh, what was then a rather small a pro-freedom movement uh, dominated uh, by just a very few uh, names and groups at that time. Uh, Fee was almost alone, in fact, in the 1950s as uh, the only uh, full-time free market think tank in the country. So turning now to the book, it's set up as a series of 52 myths about free markets. And let me just read a few of them to give people a flavor. Income inequality is the great economic and moral crisis of our time. Rich people have an obligation to give back. Health care is a right. We are destroying the earth, and government must do something about it. Capitalism, sweatshops, and child labor cry out for government intervention. The Great Depression was a calamity of unfettered capitalism, and, and the list obviously goes on and on. Um, what was the basic idea behind this collection? We feel very strongly at Fee that uh, college students these days are bombarded by progressive ideas from progressive professors, and those uh, professors dominate uh, much of academia, and they're not known for presenting all sides, <laughs> to put it mildly. In many cases, uh, professors of a progressive persuasion sort of present their perspective of uh, more government and collective uh, collectivist thinking as if it's uh, a, a fact, not an opinion, and they often don't uh, uh, let the students know that there are differing viewpoints. So our purpose in assembling this book uh, was to give intellectual ammunition, you might say, to students around the country so that they can do intellectual battle with those professors. And when a professor says, for instance, well, the Great Depression was caused by capitalism, a student who has this book in his hand uh, can say, wait a minute, uh, I don't think that's true. Uh, here's another perspective. I learned this in this book. So that was our purpose, and I, I think we're well on our way to uh, making it an important uh, tool in the toolkit of students who want to fight back. Now, several of the chapters are about one topic in one way or another, and that's inequality, which is certainly one of the things we focus on here. Why did you choose to devote so much space to that particular issue? Inequality of income is uh, really a major issue in the country, and 
at least one of the major political parties uh, is likely to make that a centerpiece of the presidential campaign next year. And it's often used by people of a uh, so-called progressive persuasion as a way to convince people that there ought to be higher tax rates or more government spending, more redistribution in one form or another. Uh, economic inequality is often presented as, uh, uh, you know, on its face, a, a bad thing. And uh, the remedy is often presented as being uh, government action of some sort or another. But as we point out in the book, uh, you know, there's a difference between economic equality and equality before the law. In the case of equality before the law, I think most people would say that's a very noble goal. Uh, we should all be uh, judged innocent or guilty of something we may be accused of based upon whether we did it and not according to irrelevant criteria like race or place of origin or, or religious faith or whatever. Uh, but there, thereafter, uh, we're not equal in terms of our character, our talents, our willingness to work, or even our luck. And so the chapters in the book that deal with this issue are intended to, uh, to explain to the students that um, if inequality arises because people are being themselves, being the unique, precious individuals that each of us is, um, using our talents accordingly, well, then that's something to rejoice in, not something to lament. And whenever you try to use government to make people what they aren't, to make them economically equal, irrespective of their contributions to the marketplace, uh, you set yourself up for failure and an awful lot of uh, bloodshed and, and economic chaos in the process. And I think how you set that up is really important because there's, I think, a tendency to think, well, the progressives care about equality and then free market supporters care about freedom or prosperity or something like that. But I think the point of what you said is that there's no such thing as being for equality across the board. You're either for the government treating people the same or you're for the government punishing some people, giving special favors to others, and you have to make a choice. And a lot of the reason why we view equality in the abstract as something good is precisely because we're focused on, say, the civil rights and the idea of here was the government treating some people differently, not protecting their rights equally to others. And I think that puts a very powerful framework on our side that we often don't take advantage of. Yes, I agree. I think you put it well. And to that, I would add that we also focus, as uh, believers in liberty, we focus on individuals. Uh, so if you were to ask, well, are you interested in equality or inequality of, of income or material wealth, I would say, well, first and foremost, I'm interested in individuals. And I want each individual to have the greatest opportunity uh, without uh, resorting to force against another person to be that unique individual that each and every one of us is. I, I want you to have the freedom to choose where you want to go, where you want to work, what you want to be, what you want to buy, who you want to buy it from. Uh, I want you to be free to be the individual that you are, even though that means that if you work harder or smarter than somebody else at something, you might earn more money. Uh, that's frankly what uh, humanity and human life is supposed to be all about, each of us going as far as our talents and our willingness uh, to work can take us. Now, of course, the broader objection to standing for freedom in that way is that 
historically and in theory, it leads to all sorts of disasters. And of course, I think that's many of those are what are addressed in the book. Let's just take a few to give people a flavor of the kind of ideas. So one of them, which we hear all the time today, is that labor unions raise wages in the standard of living. Yeah, that's uh, that's an old myth going back quite a few years. It's interesting that some people still hold it uh, uh, to heart, even though organized labor in this country, uh, in, in the private sector now, is, comprises less than 7% of the workforce. That raises, uh, uh, you know, an interesting question. Well, if if less than 7% in the private sector workforce are unionized, how do the other 93% survive? Well, the fact is, uh, through market forces largely, they are able to uh, to be mobile, to go where the jobs are, to pursue their, their talents, uh, either as uh, workers for someone else, if they like the offers that are made to them, or to go into business themselves. Uh, and 93% of American workers who are not members in the private sector of any union, for the most part, do very, very well. And unions... Uh, have actually priced a lot of people out of the labor market altogether. Uh, I remember living in Michigan for 30-some years. It was taken as an article of faith for a a large portion of the population in Michigan at the time that organized labor really uh, made it for the working man in Michigan. But now it's pretty apparent to a lot of folks that, no, uh, over the years that organized labor exerted itself in Michigan, especially in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. What it ended up doing was simply uh, crippling the auto industry. There were other factors, too, including some bad management. But the unions crippled the auto industry by pricing many workers out of the labor market, uh, which sent a signal to foreign automakers, hey, you can now do it better and cheaper than we can. So I wouldn't say that labor unions uh, have been a great friend of the working man in recent decades. In fact, they've uh, often been very harmful. Now, one of the most popular ideas, certainly in the last couple of years we've been talking about, is that the minimum wage helps people, and especially the poor. And you identify that as a myth in the book. Yes, it sure is. Uh, Henry Hazlitt, the great uh, late economist, put it very well when he said, you cannot make a person worth a certain amount by making it illegal to pay him any less. In other words, if Congress says, well, everybody has to be paid at least you know, pick a number, 8 bucks an hour. Some are saying $15 an hour is what they'd like. Well, the question then should arise, is there no job that's worth to any employer something less than 8 bucks? Is there such a thing as a job that's only worth 7 Or is there such a thing as a person who may uh, be only worth $7 an hour to an employer because that person is very young, inexperienced, has no references, or the job itself just doesn't demand high skills. Well, of course there are such jobs and such people. So then if the Congress says, sorry, you've got to pay at least 8 uh, or 10 or 15, that's like saying to workers, unless you're able to find a job that pays at least that amount, you're not allowed to work. So you simply price low-skilled people out of the labor force, and those are the very people that the minimum wage is supposed to help. But they're the ones who get disemployed, not the ones who are already earning well above the minimum. If it really made any sense to decree higher wages by law uh, under punishment or threat of punishment, you can't pay somebody less than a certain amount, well, then why do they just 
settle for 8 or 10 or even 15 Why not just pass a law that says everybody has to be paid $50 an hour, and suddenly we'd all be rich? But, of course, that's uh, absurd. It's, it's magic wand economics. It it's, uh, flies in the face of what we know about things like uh, supply and demand. And going back to your point about the need to focus on individuals, what will often happen is that the more intellectually engaged supporters of the minimum wage will acknowledge that to some extent, yes, some people will be kept out of a job, but other people will be getting higher income and they will in effect say, well, this is a social trade-off worth making. Whereas being focused on individuals, the idea that it's okay to basically destroy and undermine people some people's lives in order to give other people a bump in a salary is something i assume he would say that is not a legitimate moral calculus it sure isn't i mean i mean it's cruel it's downright cruel to say we're perfectly happy to take this person who's gainfully employed and throw him completely out of work and, and uh, to whatever fate may await him so that somebody else can make a, uh, a buck more or two bucks or whatever it may be I think that's a, a dreadful moral calculus. And who are these third parties who think they have the right to use political force to come into the marketplace, disemploy somebody, and divert resources to somebody else? I, I don't know what makes them think they have that right. Some of them, they feel good about it afterwards, but that's because they're not looking at real individuals. They're just assuming that the few people who were able to keep their job and get a little higher wage uh, that that somehow offsets the folks that they've disemployed. I think that's cruel and it's uh, and it's immoral. We live in the age of stimulus spending, and you have a chapter in here with the myth: government spending brings jobs and prosperity. And to many people, it seems well, it's at least self-evident that you're creating jobs because here's people getting employed through various government spending measures that otherwise would not be doing those jobs. Well, I'm one of those many economists who's never bought into that idea that when government spends, it stimulates, and that uh, but if it left it in your pocket uh, and you spent it or did whatever with it, it, it wouldn't stimulate. Uh, I don't think there's anything about what politicians decide that somehow, is a, uh, that somehow gooses the economy. Um, the analogy I like to use is of a thief who goes through a neighborhood uh, and house to house, and he looks for every dollar he can find, all the loot that he can gather, and he takes the money he's stolen and he goes off to the shopping mall and spends it in one store after another. If all you did afterwards was to interview the storekeepers or the employees where he spent the money, you'd hear a lot of people saying, well, he stimulated my business. But, of course, you would not be very thorough in your thinking because you wouldn't be asking, well, what about the folks who don't have the money because he took it and spent it here? Don't they have exactly that much less uh, to, quote, stimulate uh, the businesses or the other endeavors that they might choose to support with, with their dollars? So um, it's, it's not being thorough in your thinking to assume that uh, just because government takes it and spends it that somehow there's – some new additional wealth in the economy or employment. You're only looking at half half of the equation. Now, I think um, I definitely agree with that, but there's also a lot of tricky economics arguments that will come, particularly from a Keynesian kind of view, 
um, that I think a student will encounter, certainly if he's talking to somebody who's kind of an expert in the field. And so what are your thoughts on your, the purpose of the book is to give people kind of the basic framework for a lot of these questions, but when they encounter kind of tricky and very sophisticated arguments that allegedly refute them, what's your advice to somebody who encounters that? Well, we try to anticipate a lot of those counter arguments, and I'm, you know, this is not the uh, uh, you know foolproof total encyclopedia uh, for uh, handling progressive myths. So I'm sure we left some out. But I know in the case of government stimulus spending, you do have Keynesians who would come back and say, "Well, but when the government takes it and spends it, then we're sure it's going to be spent." Whereas if we left it in the pockets of the people who earned it. They might just stuff it in their mattresses and not spend it. Uh, but, of course, if that's what consumers do, if they choose not to spend, say, uh, what government might otherwise uh, tax and spend for them, if they choose to save it, uh, that's simply a choice of the future over the present, and prices adjust accordingly. If consumers think that prices are falling and going to continue to fall, that there'll be bargains to be had in the future, yeah, maybe they won't spend it today. But prices adjust accordingly, and at some point a falling price uh, has fallen enough that consumers say, now it's time to buy. So there's a degree of impatience on the part of Keynesians who think that, hey, no, we want to stimulate now. We want to increase spending now when maybe consumers would prefer to save. And there's virtue in savings. Savings is an important source of capital. And when they save, and if the result is that prices are not under so much pressure to rise, well, then they can buy things at the right time, in their view, uh, at a lower price. And that makes their standard of living higher than if uh, they were to wait and spend when prices go up. So I want to ask a broader question. I think a lot of people's political views are arrived at or certainly influenced by their ideas from history. Capitalism doesn't work because it caused the Great Depression. We need regulation because Upton Sinclair's jungle showed what happens when we don't. And for some of these topics, we've started to see free market thinkers challenge conventional narratives and actually get a hearing. And I have in mind, for instance, something like Amity Schley's work in the Great Depression or Burton Folsom's. Um, but this still seems to be an area, history, in which there's a lot more to be done. And I'm wondering, first of all, if you agree with that assessment. And if so, why hasn't there been more historic work done by free market intellectuals? Well, I think you're right, uh, Don. There is room for more work to be done. One of those areas concerns the uh, multiple uh, recessions and depressions that we've had in American history. Uh, free market folks have done a lot of good work on the Great Depression, but you still hear other people of a progressive persuasion say, well, okay, but America had lots of other recessions, too, and capitalism caused all of those. The Depression of 1893, the of course, I don't like to talk about the one of 1921 because it was short and sweet and over with in no time because government actually did, in my view, the right thing by cutting spending and cutting taxes and allowing a sick economy to quickly recover uh, from the government's own uh, faulty interventions prior to it. Uh, so I think there's more work that could be done on the various recessions and depressions in American history probably more that can be done on the role of uh, organized labor in American history, because you still have a lot of people who will say, 
Well, I understand labor unions today may have outlived their usefulness, but they served an important purpose because at one time uh, capitalists were greedy and nasty and so forth. I think that's overdone and uh, overdue for uh, a coherent and, and intelligent response. So there's still work that needs to be done. Why haven't we done enough of it just yet? Uh, I think maybe uh, a lot of us on, on the free market side of things are more interested in the future than we are the past. I mean, we get excited about things like uh, freedom to innovate and to uh, make choices and to create new schools and you know, all the things that uh, uh, the people do when they're free. And it's kind of a divergence or a diversion to have to stop and say, now let's go back and correct the record because some people insist on getting it wrong. So maybe we've undersold uh, the importance of correcting that record and focused a little bit too much on all the wonderful things that could yet be accomplished if we only restore uh, freedom and free markets today. Now, this book, as you said, uh, is really aiming to empower young people who hear all of these myths what are some things that particularly young people advocating for free markets and trying to argue for their ideas, what are some things where you think they go wrong communicating their views? Sometimes, of course, this varies widely by person to person, but some people will take a needlessly confrontational approach or even nasty sometimes. So their attitude seems to be, hey, uh, what's wrong with you? Haven't you heard this? Uh, let me pound this uh, rebuttal into you. Whereas more often than not, uh, if you want to convince a progressive or a statist uh, of, of the uh, virtues of free markets, it's better to take a uh, an understanding perspective or a questioning one. Uh, we often think uh, on our side that we've got to give a lecture every time somebody expresses uh, an opposing viewpoint when sometimes just simply asking them questions to get them to think about their premises is a more effective way to bring them around. So many people on the, uh, on the left, you might say, uh, aren't of their views because they've thoroughly read and understood our perspective. Most of the time they've never read much of anything of our perspective. They think they know it, but they really don't. And they may not know much more of their own except a bunch of bumper stickers. But to draw that out, you could, uh, instead of lecturing at them, you could raise questions. Uh, and I find that kind of Socratic method is often a better way to get people to start thinking about their own faulty premises. Uh, and that's probably necessary before you can accept, get them to accept your good premises or your conclusions. Yeah, and part of what I like about that is I think one of, certainly in my own experience, I learned a ton by really trying to understand how different perspectives think about their own ideas. And somebody much wiser than myself once told me, you know, it's not when you can answer their argument that you got them. It's when you know what their answer to your answer is going to be. And I think yeah. asking questions allows you to do that. You're not just doing it as like a trick to convince somebody, but as a tool for your own understanding. That's right. And it can often cool the level of discussion, too, because it gets them talking and uh, you're not just countering and counterattacking, you can you can draw them out in a way that uh, is, is more thoughtful, I think, than coming at them uh, head on. 
And related to that, I think, too, we, uh, there's always room for us to be a bit more empathetic. We should try to find some common ground uh, early in discussions with people of a different viewpoint. Um, of course, the left loves to talk about uh, how compassionate they are for the poor. We ought to be quick to say, hey, I share that compassion. It bothers me that there are people who are poor through no fault of their own. And that's why I'm in favor of, for instance, eliminating barriers that uh, we create politically that hold people back. That's why I'm concerned about uh, lousy government schools that freeze people into terrible settings and don't give them the choice to opt out. So I share uh, with uh, many of my friends on the left, you could say, uh, the uh, end objective of seeing people do better. Uh, so let's agree on that and talk about what the best means is. That might be a better approach than, uh, you know, than coming across right out of the gate as if all, all you're interested in is dollars and cents, bottom line, green eye shades stuff. You know, we really, we really are concerned about people. That's why we are for liberty. Yeah, I think there's. It, it's certainly true that there's areas where it's important to appeal to their better values, but I think it's also important to identify clashes of values. I think there is a real clash between valuing the individual versus thinking that there's something above the individual, and I think those also need to be brought to the forefront. But part of how you do it is by saying that, say, holding a collectivist worldview clashes with other things they claim to care about, like the ability of a person to make something of his life. That's right. And we do address this, uh, this dichotomy between individualism and collectivism and seeing the world through those two very different prisms. Uh, that's addressed in the book. I like to speak of it in terms of snowflakes and a snowstorm. Uh, if you're a collectivist, you see the snowstorm, but you don't see beyond it. If you're an individualist, you, you see the snowstorm, but you realize that, hey, it's, it's made up of countless uh, unique snowflakes. And if you really want to understand the storm, I think it begins by understanding uh, what makes it up, which is uh, a collection of very unique uh, individuals from one to another. So to end on a positive, what do you see as the biggest opportunities for really moving forward the ideas of free markets and capitalism? And this might be issues you think that we're, are ripe for us to have an influence on, but it could also be strategies or audiences or some other way of moving forward the debate? I think focusing on the promise of innovative entrepreneurship is a great way to reach out to young people because young people today, they're, they're, they're quite excited about uh, the ongoing, never-ending revolution in science, technology, in uh, uh, their ability to communicate to pe with people all over the world instantaneously. Uh, and they're excited about uh, the prospects of being able to start an enterprise with very little capital, uh, the kind of thing that the Internet and recent technologies have brought within the reach of ordinary people. And if we, if we focus on that, about how you can make a huge difference in the world, you can make a huge difference for yourself and your family, in a market where you're free to innovate and to use these wonderful, uh, exciting technologies, but you're not going to be able to do that in a society where uh, a progressive elite tries to mandate and control from the top down. Uh, these kinds of uh, exciting developments we're now seeing in technology will disappear 
and the opportunities to, uh, uh, to put them to good use will disappear with them if, if government takes the view that, look, we've got to regulate everything right down to the fine details. Uh, that's a kind of soul-crushing environment that no young person interested in an exciting future should, should, should uh, give much time to. So how can people find out more about you, the book, your work? If uh, anyone listening to this wants to learn more about FEE, they can go to our website. It's easy to remember, fee.org. If they're interested in the book, excuse me, professor, all they have to do is type that into the search engine, and it'll go uh, right to a page describing the book. It's also available uh, on Amazon, on uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, Books A Million. Uh, it's not too hard to find these days, and it's selling pretty well. My guest today has been Lawrence Reed. Thank you again for being part of the Dead Dialogues. Thank you very much. We covered a lot of different territory here about how to defend free markets against a litany of different charges. Let me say that although I don't agree with everything in Larry's book, it has a lot of gems, and it's a good resource for a lot of different issues. But I want to reiterate one point I made during the discussion. The single best method I know for becoming a better champion of capitalism is to know the other side's arguments and to know them better than they do. You need to go as deep as possible with this until, ideally, you don't just know a bunch of different, isolated arguments that they make, but the framework they use to think about these issues. Because if you know the framework, that means you know the core issues that the entire debate hinges on, and it's by exposing those core issues and contrasting their framework with yours that you change people's minds. This doesn't mean only talking about the most fundamental issues, but it means understanding what is behind all of the specific, individual, concrete claims that are made. So how do you discover the other side's views? And one easy way is simply to talk to them, ask a lot of questions, listen carefully to their answers. But ultimately, I think there's no substitute for reading the leading intellectuals in any issue that you're tangling with. For example, when I was preparing for my book on inequality, I read all the standard guys we hear from today in this issue, whether it was Paul Krugman, Thomas Piketty, Joseph Stiglitz. But I also paired, or rather paid, careful attention to the authorities they cited and appealed to, which led me to read thinkers like the egalitarian philosopher John Rawls. And that was really the key to being able to dissect what was behind the inequality alarmist agenda and then being able to contrast their philosophy with the objectivist approach and show that everything desirable, everything that's right, is on our approach and that what they're really doing is writing from a place and thinking from a place that is really, really bad and could only be put over by appealing to the better values on the side of the people they're trying to convince. So definitely read about the case for your views. Think about the case for your views. Your views should be ultimately based on your thinking about what's right and wrong. But it's not enough simply to be clear on your own case if your goal is to convince other people. The more that you know about the views you disagree with, the better you'll be able to persuade others. 
With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy it, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash deaddraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only. 